Welcome to Designing the Future. My name is Michael Alba. I'm the senior editor here at engineering.com. And on this show, we talk to industry experts about the state of design software today, and more interestingly, where it might be headed tomorrow. Today, we're lucky to be joined by James Daig, the Chief Technical Officer of Simulation and Design Solutions at Altair. James, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Michael. Now, one of Altair's claims to fame is the pioneering of topology optimization technology in the early 1990s with your product OptiStruct. You've been at Altair since 1987, so you've seen topology optimization from the beginning. Tell me, how has that technology matured over the years? Wow, it's come a long way. You know, in the very early days, uh, we could do um, topology optimization really in response to just, you know, basic load cases and uh, you know, over the last decades, you know, it's seen so much use in the real world. Um, I remember when we first came out with it, thought, man, this is going to change the world because you can use it to design parts. But uh, the reality is when you design parts, you have many different kinds of situations, you know, cyclic symmetry, uh, manufacturing constraints are a really big deal because you we, we were able to generate shapes uh, that were exotic and people hadn't come up with before, but then they had to manufacture those, you know, whether it was going to be a casting process or, you know, metal forming. And you have to really be thinking about that stuff in the optimization process for it to be manufacturable. So over the years, we added in all these manufacturing constraints. So you could indicate what, what direction, for instance, the, the die would separate in so there'd be no overhang angles and things like that. Um, so those were the real practical issues we had to solve over the years. You know, today now we're, we're, uh, we're solving for all kinds of vibrations problems, thermal problems, and really kind of mixed physics. So um, the, it's really uh, become a really practical uh, technology and it's used in really all forms of uh, engineering now. And how has topology optimization influenced this new class of technology that people are calling generative design? Yeah, I think generative design is kind of a, uh, you know, we, we're hearing about that terminology more recently. Uh, topology optimization is certainly a big part of what generative design is about. You know, in order to generate design, there has to be something which is going through the iterative process of trying different approaches to solve a particular problem. And you can do that in different ways. You know, you can use artificial intelligence, uh, you can use uh, direct optimization methods and so forth. Um, I think, you know, the, the reality is uh, topology optimization is still the, the basis for where all the real world practical uh, application of the technology is taking place. So you mentioned artificial intelligence. How is artificial intelligence and specifically machine learning influencing the development of design software today? Yeah, I would say it is the number one area of, of, of research going on across all of our disciplines right now. So uh, we're, we're seeing the application of machine learning on both, you know, the modeling side, where you're setting up these very complex models to run, but also on the simulation side. And I'll give you some examples. So building these complex simulation models, uh, you know, they're quite often meshed with the complex meshes. There's lots of boundary conditions and so forth. And the process of setting those up is still pretty labor intensive by humans. And so we're now beginning to apply uh, artificial intelligence methods to do like feature detection through a model. So maybe you need to remove particular features or find particular features. We can use uh, shape uh, examining AI to look through the model, find all the details maybe that are the same so they could be like meshed the same or we could apply boundary conditions on these areas based on the, these artificial intelligence uh, search algorithms. Uh, you can also do adaptive meshing using artificial intelligence methods. 
And then uh, on the simulation side, what we've been doing is um, training neural nets with simulations so that you can then have that become a proxy for doing future simulations. So if you have a particular part shape, uh, what you can do is actually subject that uh, part in simulation to a number of different boundary conditions and similar parts and train a, a neural net. And what the neural net will do is it will predict what the responses will be for a shape in the future. And it can do it really quickly, so don't have to run the simulations at that time too. So it's popping up everywhere. Really, um, AI, I think, has lots of applications in, in, in the simulation world. Yeah, and everywhere it seems these days. But yeah. since you bring up meshing, I wanted to ask you about meshless simulation. I mean, this is in contrast to traditional finite element analysis, for example. You know, Altair has recently invested in meshless simulation. It seems that meshless simulation has a lot of upsides and not too many downsides. So will meshless simulation continue to coexist alongside traditional meshing? How's that going to look in the future? Yeah, absolutely. You know, meshless, and it comes in different forms. You know, you can have meshless, which is uh, based on, you know, higher order functions through a, through a finite element field. They call that meshless sometimes. But we've really seen kind of this emergence of a new generation of meshless. You know, our offering for structural simulation that's meshless is SimSolid. You know, that, that's completely revolutionizing the entire process of doing structural simulation because you just work straight off the geometry as it comes. You don't build a separate mesh at all. And it can give answers that are really accurate really fastly, uh, really fast. And there's a lot of play yet left in what we can do with the physics in, in that product like that. So right now we're doing frequency response and we're doing linear statics and things like that, but there's a lot more physics we can add. So you'll see a lot of growth in that area. Um, but I think they'll still exist side by side, to be honest. I think with uh, there's a lot of very mature processes around uh, finite element modeling methods and simulation. Those, those products are used in many ways. But uh, over time, you'll see the growth. Another form of kind of meshless, I would say, is uh, voxel-based methods. And uh, what you're seeing is voxels almost make the mesh feel irrelevant to the user. Even though the simulation is using a voxel-based uh, mesh underneath, it hides a lot of the complexities of traditional meshing, and you can get really accurate answers. It can be fast. I think we're still in the early stages of it, but with using these multi-resolution uh, voxel meshes on high-performance computing platforms, they'll have a big factor in, uh, in coming into uh, the simulation world as well. So one of the driving reasons for something like this to make simulation easier is to make it more accessible to more people, a concept often called democratization. I know this is something Altair is interested in, uh, but how's that coming along? I mean, is simulation democratized yet? When is it going to be democratized? What's the end game for this movement? Yeah, we've had a strong interest in seeing uh, this democratization of, of simulation. You know, the earlier you can use simulation and the engineering and design process, the better, right? You do, you'll be fixing a lot of stuff uh, early rather than later in, in the overall process. So. About mm, 10 years ago or so, we started to put OptiStruct inside of a new product for us, which was called Inspire. Uh, and that was more like a, a design system. It's a conceptual design platform uh, where you really were having a geometry type experience, but you have all the power of OptiStruct built into that product. So at the early stage of a design, any designer or design engineer who's not really a specialist in finite element methods I could begin to leverage this technology at, at the right point in the process and get their designs, you know, right, right at the beginning of, uh, of the design process. 
Um, and I think uh, that's very true of like SimSolid. So that's a product that works on the CAD data and it works so fast that you get almost immediate feedback on, on any design changes that you make. And uh, to me, that really brings simulation and optimization methods uh, to a much broader audience that, that can use it where it's most effective. How is simulation software progressing to embrace systems level thinking? Yeah, you know, um, it used to be that we were just happy, I think, in the simulation world to be able to simulate a crash or, you know, the vibrations of a system or, you know, the thermal effects or CFD in their individual silos, you know, and then the engineering process at a company would be to between teams, you know, negotiate which which of these engineering disciplines gets to have a say in the design, you know. Uh, but now what the, the real goal is to is to have multidisciplinary simulation where you're considering all of those things uh, more together. Um, and that really speeds up the process and leads to much better answers. So by, able to, by being able to do these kind of multi-physics uh, disciplines where you bring multiple solvers together to solve a problem, um, it's really powerful. I'll give you a great case in point. Um, yeah, really big deal right now is designing electric motors for electrification of vehicles, right? Well, electric motor design is, uh, it is the classic systems problem. You've got electromagnetics, you've got structures, because there's a lot of high frequency vibrations that go through the motors, you know, they make a lot of noise, there's heat problems and so forth. And it's really hard with an electric motor to solve any one of those problems without looking at the entire problem together. So we've been linking our our flux product together with our uh, thermal products and our structural products. So the solvers are all working together in a co-simulation process to solve the overall uh, problem. And to, to support that though, we also have to do a lot of work on the modeling and visualization side so that the setup of the problem is, is easy as well because you have to account for all the physics up front and we want that to be uh, easy to use production level, you know, environment for people where they just put in the parameters and everything gets solved. So a lot of work on, on the solver side and also the, the best practices side for setting up the problems. And how does the cloud fit into all of this? Is design and simulation software headed towards the cloud permanently? Or is the cloud gonna remain sort of a niche ecosystem for the software? Yeah, the cloud is is uh, is for real. Uh, you know, the the benefits of the cloud are certainly the the availability it can bring for high performance computing resources. You know, you can scale up really quickly when you have a big problem. You can use less, uh, so it really you know it's going to have a lot of cost effectiveness. Um, the other thing is that it, it helps with collaboration and data storage and accessibility for teams. So those benefits are real. Those are going to be here to stay for sure. But I think there's still a lot of value on the desktop. You know, there's a lot of compute power on the desktop and there probably always will be for a long time. So there's no sense not using it. And there's a certain uh, robustness to having the independence. So now, like most companies, we're in the process of, of adapting our architectures to really capitalize on what's available through the cloud. And, you know, you can see it through our offerings release by release. You see Altair One as our platform for accessing all of our products and, and doing our licensing and even doing compute as well. So yeah, we're, we're definitely uh, we're definitely headed in the direction of the, the cloud, but uh, I think it'll be a heterogeneous in, environment for some time to come. Well, let's talk about uh, the topic of digital twins, which is kind of this interesting marriage between data and simulation, uh, both things that Altair is heavily invested in. 
how do you effectively manage data in the context of a digital twin? Yeah, you know, I, I look at there being sort of two fundamental data challenges with digital twin. Uh, let's say the first one is um, for the kind of digital twin where you have like a real time live interaction between the physical and the simulation model. So there you might be developing a control system and uh, they're, they're communicating in real time. So you have to have, you know, the sensors have to report back with very low latency. So you have to have a, a, a stack that gets that data to the simulation model really fast. Uh, you know, so you're trying to avoid copying of data, you know, and things like that. So the protocols have to allow for that uh, in both directions. You know, so a few years ago, Altair actually invested in, in IoT technology so that we could begin to include that in, in, in the part of our solution for, for, for that very reason. Uh, so we're trying to really streamline that process so the communication from the edge to the simulation model is, is really efficient. Uh, the other dimension to the problem, the other challenge you face is the volumes of data that you can get, especially if it's not necessarily real time, but you're really trying to tackle you know, collecting a lot of performance data about a product that's, you know, in service during operation, you know, whether it's an aircraft flying, the amount of data you can imagine is just staggering, really. So for that, you, you, there's different strategies that people can use. Um, one, of course, is just bulk storage has to be, it's got to be high, right? There's a cost to that, but you just do it. Well, the other thing is to, um, I think, intelligently extract from that data the stuff you think you're really going to need and do data analytics and reduction on that data so that you're storing a lot less. Now, you, you do have to think ahead of time what you're going to need uh, if you're going to do extractions and throw away some. So that but that is a that is a legitimate strategy and to use good data analytics tools to kind of do it as you're collecting the data and reduce the volumes down as well. Is that an area where artificial intelligence could play a role as well? It does, because, you know, to extract good information out of that data, uh, you're really looking at patterns in the data and really the ultimate way to extract uh, patterns from data is using AI methods, right? They're, uh, they're superb at doing that kind of thing. You can use traditional, you know, signal processing to do filtering and, and things like that, but there's the more abstract types of uh, cases where you want to use AI to detect uh, noise patterns or just really any kind of abstract pattern in the data and reduce it down into or, or store it as a, as a neural net later rather than the raw data, for instance. So the next subject I want to talk about is uh, relentlessly topical, but someday maybe it won't be. How is the current COVID-19 pandemic affecting the world of design and simulation software? Yeah, I think it's my uh, number one question I've gotten the last six months and probably most people. Um, you know, I, I would say in the world of simulation, um, it probably has not slowed things down too much. I think there was initially, when we were talking to our customers, their, their first concerns were, you know, getting everybody set up to work from home with the right, you know, computers. And most people have laptops, they can log into work. Uh, there was definitely some early work uh, on our part to get our licensing system available so that uh, an OEM or a, a company could quickly access their licenses uh, from home, which was not typical. And, you know, you could do it through VPN, but that's probably not optimal, right? You really just want a direct license connection. And making sure that companies could run the software they needed locally, uh, access the cloud, uh, so there's definitely been a move. I, this would probably be uh, one of the impetuses, I think, which will help spur people towards cloud. You know, that's where you're, uh, everybody can collaborate when they're in remote uh, situations and so forth. So, but in terms of productivity, you know, I think um, 
after a couple early hiccups there, I think people are moving along pretty rapidly at the same pace they were before, to be, to be honest. Yeah. So do you think it'll, it'll have any lasting changes in how engineers approach design software, or is it sort of just accelerating things in the direction they were already headed? Yeah, you know, I think, well, it's clearly, uh, Im it's, it's driving people towards a better online collaboration. You know, they want to work in shared project spaces, I've, I think, more than ever. So that would be an acceleration of probably where we were already headed. I mean, you could see collaborative uh, environments in CAD systems, you know, 15 years ago, I remember seeing them, but uh, I don't think they were heavily used. I think they're more heavily used today. And, and, and that's true of CAE as well. And then I think that... Um, yeah, probably just the data storage uh, and, and things that uh, people need to access remotely, um, you know, to, to have good bandwidth um, to, to, to do that kind of work and still be able to store it is uh, it's going to accelerate all of those things. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's accelerating is Altair's development of physics solvers. You've commented that the company has developed more solvers in the last few years than at any other time in the company's history. What's behind that acceleration? Well, this touches on, I think, what we were talking about earlier about the multi-physics and multidisciplinary simulations. Uh, you know, like I said, they people were happy just to be able to, you know, simulate a car crash if they could. And, and you know, now um, where you see us focus a lot of time is these multidisciplinary uh, scenarios that require more physics solvers. So, you know, in addition to our kind of traditional base of of structures and and things like that, we have grown a lot in recent years in uh, electromagnetic solutions, um, CFD solutions, probably have the, the deepest set of CFD solutions available on the market today, I think. Um, we recently did an acquisition of uh, discrete element methods, um, the EDEM product, so we can simulate uh, bulk materials and soils and pharmaceuticals and things like that. And what we do when we do these acquisitions is the first thing we start thinking about is, you know, how does this tie into our other solvers to attack these multidisciplinary problems? So Altair went public back in uh, about four years ago, and um, that's really enabled us to be more acquisitive. And I think bringing in these additional, we have very uh, focused um, mind on the different kind of solver technologies we want to bring to solve really the engineering problems that our, that our customers are facing. So there's, there's definitely things we have in mind that we want to achieve with more solvers. Well, let's uh, dust off our crystal balls then for a second. If we look, say, 50 years into the future, what do you think the landscape of design software will look like then? Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, in these fast-moving industries, 50 years is a long time, I'll tell you. I think um, uh, it's hard to even predict beyond five years, I think. Um, you know, if you look at Moore's Law, the computational ability in 50 years will just be insane. I think you'll do, you know, these massive uh, optimization problems almost in near real time so that people are interacting with large, multi-scale optimization problems, multidisciplinary ones. Um, yeah, in near real time, I would imagine. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if as memory becomes so vast in such a small amount of space, if if there is a reverse in the trend from all the storage being on cloud, where that's a lot of value of cloud today, right? It may may become more distributed again, you know, in 50 years. Who knows? Everything will, uh, will be uh, able to hold almost infinite memory by today's standards. Um, so, yeah, I think you'll see um, more. The virtual reality is still... I think very much in its infant stages. Everybody's kind of using it, but if you do use it, you 
you you recognize, even though it has value, that uh, there's a long way to go in the way people interact with it. You know, the sensors on the people are still rather limited and crude. I think um, that will improve a lot over over the next uh, decade or two. Um, but boy, I hope I'm around in 50 years to see it. It should be exciting times. Yeah. All right, James, let me ask you one more question. I know you focus a lot on user interface. So I want to ask, what is the importance of user interface and design software and, and how are you working to improve it? Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, uh, over the last 30 years, uh, it's a case study in the importance of user interface, I think, in, in my career. Uh, you know, in the very early days of the CAE and simulation world, it, it's it's software that was developed by engineers for engineers. And I think the the threshold, you know, what they're willing to tolerate in terms of usability, they were just so happy to not be, you know, doing hand calcs, right? Uh, but today, you know, it's about productivity. We've really commoditized a lot of the the engineering process. You know, they take for granted that they can do these really sophisticated uh, simulations. So now a lot of the focus is on, hey, make it easier, make it faster, uh, make it easy to learn. I don't want non-standard systems. So we've put a lot of effort uh, in, in you know, the last decade to standardize our user interfaces, make them fun to use, not just easy, uh, but really fun. You know, everybody wants to have fun while they're spending eight hours a day doing their work. So they need to be really responsive. And, you know, there's a the newer generation of students coming in and out of schools, you know, they're used to working with iPads and they're gamers and they want that familiar experience. They want that level of responsiveness from the software. And, and I do too, you know, so every, so there is that whole sense of uh, trying to bring that really high quality user experience that's product oriented uh, to the users to, uh, to increase productivity and, and enjoyment. Do you think uh, simulation apps and other design software are going to something like an iPad? Is that how engineers will actually be using this software in the future? It'll be a big part of it, yeah. I, probably not exclusively on a pad. I mean, there's it's really hard to beat a mouse when it comes down to daily use, you know, but I use a combination of mouse and pen and touch and all these things every day. And I remember when each one kind of hit the market and people would rub their chins. I don't know if I would use, you know, a touch at all, but they, they complement each other really well. You, may, you might not use touch on your screen to do the whole design process, but occasionally you want to rotate your model with your hand and that's that's great, you know, and then you're back to your mouse. So, and and, and pads, you know, my, my kids grew up pads, they're teenagers now, and, um, you know, they still prefer in many ways a, a pad experience for, for their games and so forth. Um, so it'll be a part of it. It's an ecosystem of, of tools. and uh, But I, you know, I'll go back to my 50-year prediction. I still think there will be a form of mouse available in 50 years because it's just such a good device, actually. All right. Well, we'll have to see if you're right. James, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, this was a fun conversation. Hopefully, we'll do it again. And thanks to you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Designing the Future.